Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays Cause no matter how far away you When you pine for the sunshine of a friendly gaze For the holidays you can Imagine you're huddled beneath the awning of a bus station. It's an evening in mid-December, and the square is bustling with people. As a few snowflakes start to fall, you count your earnings from the day. You figure that you need another roughly $12 to pay for one night at the motel. Folks are more generous during the holidays, but as the sun sets and the snow thickens, the crowds of shoppers begin to thin. A text comes in, so you check your phone. It's a friend who takes you in from time to time. She wishes she could help, but doesn't have room tonight. The cold starts to close in. Flurries of white swirl around you, and you wonder how it ever got to this. Now fade out of this imaginary scene and into the house where you actually celebrated the holidays. Maybe you're surrounded by loved ones and perhaps there's a menorah on the windowsill or a Christmas tree covered in ornaments. Maybe a fire crackles in the hearth. Outside the wind is blowing, but here, you are warm and safe. It's been a hard year with ups and downs, but for a few days you can breathe a sigh of relief and focus your mind on gratitude. Life might not be perfect, but you have the resources and security to at least try to make things better. And maybe you'll plot it out in your New Year's resolution. And whether you're well off or just scraping by, if you were to get sick or lose your job, you would fall into the embrace of family and friends. People who experience homelessness do not have this peace of mind. There's nothing between their last paycheck and the streets. In our culture of comfort and abundance, they have the least. And for me, there's a particular sorrow associated with them because whether or not their crisis is of their own making, they must face that cruel disparity again and again and again to have nothing and be surrounded without insulation by those who have much. Of course, there are support systems in place to prevent homelessness, but they do have cracks. The individuals featured in this episode are some of the people who have slipped through these cracks, whether they be fault lines in the welfare system, emergency housing, veterans assistance, or the healthcare system. In some cases, these are people for whom systemic shortcomings have been compounded by lapses in their own personal judgment and responsibility. Whether because of misfortune, addiction, mental illness, or general dysfunction, their own personal safety net has been worn really thin. 
In many ways, the homeless are a symptom of our society's deepest impasse. Debates about welfare, housing, healthcare, and human rights all come down to the question of personal responsibility versus social and inherited circumstance. And whichever side of that debate you're on, there is no argument that the human scale of mass homelessness is vast. It can be hard to accurately count, but on a given night, about a half million Americans were experiencing homelessness this year. In Massachusetts, that number is about 18,000, and in Boston, where I live, it's about 7,000. But that's just in one night. Think about how many experience the trauma or the specter of homelessness throughout a given year. The individuals I interviewed for this episode are in no way intended to encompass the multifaceted demographics of the homeless population. It would take hundreds of interviews to do that. However, these individuals do stand out from the crowd in a few distinct ways, and I'd like to mention them. For one, Boston has one of the lowest rates of unsheltered homeless, many pointing to Massachusetts' right to shelter laws to explain this. So the people here are the ones either unwilling or unable to spend the night in a shelter or obtain access to transitional housing. Second, I intentionally focused on people in Harvard Square where I expected to find fewer addicts than in downtown Boston. I took the subway away from Park Street into the academic hub of Cambridge, surfacing into a busy intersection of last-minute shoppers, street performers, and snow showers. I offered supplies to a group of people bundled up panhandling on a corner and met Maria, who goes by Ma, She's a 71-year-old woman who is living on the street with pneumonia. She said she didn't feel well enough for an interview, but I spoke with Paula Nolan, who is also homeless and serves as Ma's caregiver. Um, My name is Paula Nolan. I am um, fairly new into the homeless world. Um, I have a college degree and have applied for 52 jobs and have gone on 26 interviews, I believe, and uh, 12 of them I was told that I was overqualified, and the rest said I just, I never heard back from. Yeah. Because um, uh, what I've, I've statistically, I've been told that there's anywhere between 100 to 500 applicants per job that's out there yeah, right now. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. So it's pretty hard. A former nurse, Paula is recovering from opiate addiction. She's been living on the street with her husband, who is a roofer and who struggles to find work in the winter months. But her struggles began a long time ago, when she was injured in a deadly car accident. Um, I was in an accident uh, quite a few years ago. I am on um, pain management um, because I have uh, metal um, holding my, my leg my leg and hip. And What kind of accident? I was in an accident with a tractor-trailer truck. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, me and um, three other people were in the car. It was, it was truly an accident. Um, the tractor-trailer jackknifed, and um, we tried to avoid the gas tank so all of us wouldn't blow up. We hit the undercarriage, and it tore the car open. Um, my friend that was behind us um, was decapitated. Um, oh, and yeah, I was trapped in the car for about five hours. So I'm grateful that I walked, but I live, you know, it's hard some days. But um, yeah. I was out of work, you know, and had surgeries and all that. And how did you guys, you said you've only been out here for a short period of time. Yeah, how how long has it been? Two and a half months now. Yeah. And what precipitated mm-hmm. you guys coming out here? Um, well, you know, like I said, like, you know, it was just we were already struggling with me out of work. 
Um, and then um, as the seasons change, it gets even harder. Um, and then, you know, we just, we, I had to sell my engagement ring to pay for the last month of rent. And I am, you know, trying to either get benefits or figure out what I can do with my career that I'm capable of doing, you know, because I have a college degree, but I can't work in the hospitals because I can't do the lifting. Yeah. But I'm also a liability because I, I have been on medication for so long. They look at it as, as that I'm a liability. Yeah. When I'm, I'm, you know, um, able to uh, take a job as a nurse and pass out medication, things like that. It just, it puts them in a situation where maybe you know that. Yes, I you know most likely would never do something like that. You yeah. know, and it's just not me. Yeah. But you know they have to think of what the possibilities are when you you're is still in recovery. You know what I mean? And and put that that to weigh. And I understand that it's not you know it's not them being um, prejudiced, but they're they're they have you know people and patients that they have to be you know take care of and, yeah, and yeah. be their advocate so, yeah. and take you know figure out what could possibly happen and yeah and and do you feel like when with the hospitals that they because you had um this period of time where you had to use the pain med uh, the painkillers do you feel like that's part of what the the li when you talk about liability? That's what yes. They, they, oh my god! Because no matter what, there? I'm always for the rest of my life, unfortunately, um, am in recovery. Yeah. And what um, is what is their fear exactly? Do you think that you would uh, like fear steal? Of, uh, no, them not steal. Well, yes, yeah, steal in a sense of taking medication and not giving a patient their whole dose. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and and that is you know it's it's that those things happen like yeah. you hear about it on the news all the time yeah. and I guarantee you that person or that nurse right would never have a million years done that unless they were were in need like yeah. I mean I, you know I mean you know it's not something that like, when you're clean and you're not on medication or when you're taking a, a supplement medication right that you would even think that way but when you're when you're sick because an opiate will make you physically ill yeah and you can't think you can't do anything what you think about is getting well yeah and it doesn't matter how you do it like when you you get desperate at some point anybody that's on medication for any length of time yeah even with if, even taking them correctly yeah will become a, a, addicted like yeah. they're an addicted they're they're um the medicine's addictive yeah, yeah right so even though i'm prescribed say Say this one medication, say um, my my Oxycontin, I'm prescribed, you know, take one twice a day, every 12 hours. Yeah. And then I have a fentanyl patch that comes on um, for three days. This is all to manage the pain this, from the, the accident? This is all pain management. A lot, um, like at one point I was on five narcotics throughout the day wow. of different strengths, um, like after I had surgery because of the metal rods and and the pain, like the pain was just unbearable. And I have very high tolerance to pain. Um, being there and being on both sides, I, I completely understand like when I hear things in the news, but again, it makes it, makes it harder for the next person in recovery. Yeah. So now I have a college degree and that's all I know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's all I've ever done since high school. Yeah. And now I can't even get a job. Yeah. So now, now on top of that, I put all that burden on my husband, right? Or he felt though, not that I put it on, he felt 
that he wasn't being a good provider because he couldn't take care of both of us because his job wasn't allowing it because of the seasons. So it's, it's, it's a vicious cycle, like it affects your home. And d does your family know that you guys are out here? Um, are you trying to kind of keep it secret? I do, I, and my mom, you know, and my mom is a widow. Uh, my dad passed away a year before my accident. Um, you know, she's, and then my, my aunt passed away and there was some issues with my, my older brother. So my, my mom's gone through a lot. Yeah, and you just and, don't want to you know, And then when I was a full, you know, I mean, when I was trying to come off, the, but never mind seeing me in the accident and dealing with all those emotions to go on, being, you know, the mother, you know, and she's a mom, you know. So, and, and being a mom myself, I can't even imagine what I put her through. Yeah. You know, not intentionally, but I did. Yeah. You know, so yeah, when I can keep certain things that I know will keep her up at night and worry her, and she's 65 years old, you know, just like any family, you have, you know, the ones going, well, why can't you just be like you used to be? Yeah. Well, that's easier said than done. You know, you're not that same person. You've seen different things or you've done different things. And, you know, sometimes it's things you never would have thought you would have done, yeah. but you had to to survive. So you know, it makes you a different person. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard if somebody doesn't want to take the time to educate themselves or maybe go to a meeting and hear that you know what your brother isn't the only one that is you know behaving this way or, or yeah. went through this and it took my mom a lot of time because and like my mom used to, why can't you just like you just be my daughter again and just you know and you know i had to literally convince her to come to meetings yeah and so you were going to NA meetings? I was going to NAAA and anything. Yeah. Anything. Like, yeah, when I came to Boston, and I had never gone to any of these things before. I, I was educated. I went to a program. Um, I got into um, New Day. It's a Casper program in Boston. Um, it's actually one of the houses in Somerville. It was a sober house? Um, it is a um, recovery program. Okay. It teaches you how to live clean again yeah. and not you know when when you're coming off of opiates like it, opiates is one of the hardest along with alcohol alcohol will actually kill you yeah right detoxing heroin won't kill you detoxing but you feel like you're dying yeah. were you using heroin at um, a certain point I too? ended up at one point having to use heroin because I had no access to any pain medication yeah. and some brilliant person suggested that heroin turns into morphine yeah which is a pain management um yeah. And now, if you asked me 10 years ago if I would have ever even thought of doing heroin, yeah. I would have looked at you and nurse. said you were crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I could see what this shit did, you know, and yeah. yeah. And, and how long have you um, been off of, of six those? Six years. Six years. I've been taking Suboxone. For six, yeah. For yeah, six years? It, yes, because okay. originally um, Suboxone was actually originally made. It's man-made. Um, it's actually a synthetic heroin. It has the same properties and it affects the same neurons in your brain. To do the same effect as a painkiller does. Yeah. Um, with the the side effects, you know, yes, with any medication, the side effects. So you know, um, but for me, that works. It works amazing. Like it, I I don't. I'm not like you would never know that I was on any maintenance. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I'm me. I'm so, me again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you feel more like yourself. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, yeah I feel like I. Yeah. Yeah, I can think. And The road back to employment for a nurse in opiate recovery is obviously very complex. 
Those who manage to maintain nursing licenses or keep their criminal records clean may find it easier to find jobs. Many recommend avoiding the topic of addiction completely in your interview. But then how do you account for the multi-year gap in your resume? In certain states, a licensure application may ask if the applicant has entered into treatment for psychiatric or substance abuse issues. And then to reinstate a nursing license, the Board of Nurses may require the individual to complete an abstinence program, a process that could require taking medical assessments, obtaining medical records, verifying attendance of recovery groups. All these tasks are obviously very, let's say, stressful or cumbersome to accomplish when you're homeless. Which brings us to another point, the difficulty of embarking on a career change or any life transformation for that matter while you're living on the street. If your life has devolved to the point where you have lost your home and you do want to turn things around, it may be necessary to pivot and transform yourself in profound ways, whether it's getting sober, changing careers, or removing yourself from a toxic relationship. Those changes are intimidating for anyone to undertake, and they obviously become even more daunting when combined with the practical difficulties and the physical danger and emotional stress of life on the street. Paula told me that she frequently struggles with feelings of inadequacy when she goes into a job interview. On top of hiding former addiction, she must quell self-doubts about her appearance and her competence and her worthiness for the job. Think about how nervous you were for your last job interview, and then add in Paula's specific brand of imposter syndrome. Some people living on the street turn to crafts, performance, or other entrepreneurial pursuits instead of trying to fit into the traditional job market. I met one such individual who sells handcrafted jewelry with his husband and their cat and ferret. Uh, the name's Justin Newton, um, unfortunately homeless, uh, with my, uh, spouse, um, and our cat and ferret, who are our emotional support animals, and we're, you know, trying to actually earn our money with the jewelry that we make, uh, we'd rather not be on any kind of assistance, and we'd rather just, you know, be self-sufficient through our jewelry business but it's it's a struggle getting there yeah. i never really liked panhandling even though i could you know sometimes make decent money at it because i, I wasn't earning it yeah uh like and i felt by making the jewelry i could was at least doing something where like if somebody like if somebody saw the the jewelry and wanted to donate it is like they're donating to support an artist, not just to support a homeless person. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gives and you more it, dignity. And then, then when they buy the pieces, it's even better because it's like, then they're really supporting the artist by like, hey, you actually have some cool stuff. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy it and and show that like I support you as an artist. Um, and so I, I was just mainly, I'd started to do it as just way to earn extra money and actually like earn the money that I get while I'm out here. Um, so how long have you been out here like fully? Um, well this time a little over a year total, um, uh, about five years. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
my uh, uh, ended up doing a little more traveling. Met my spouse, um, and uh, we had a thing for each other from the moment we met. But timing wasn't right, um, and then we were like friends for eight months. You know, best friends for eight months before we even got together. And um, he's the one who actually convinced me to turn it into, turn the jewelry into a legitimate business. Yeah. That, like, I had the potential to take what was basically just a hobby, a way to make extra money, and turn it into something as a way to become self-sufficient. And then we ended up uh, actually getting an apartment because my husband got a, a really good job as a political fundraiser um, and then he got sick and be, and we kept calling Mass Health, reapplying uh, calling the offices to check on our claims and we didn't neither of us knew we had insurance and if my husband had known he had insurance would have been able to get his illness treated very quickly, never would have lost his job. We never would, yeah. we'd still be in our apartment yeah. right now. Yeah. And what initially uh, precipitated when you first, uh, you said five years? Um, Total, yeah. yeah so um, what was the story? Basically, like? for, uh, for me, um, I, uh, I had been in a relationship for eight years. Um, Last two years of it had really been, we'd really been living as roommates. And then um, my ex ended up, because we had been in an open relationship, ended up getting a new boyfriend and I ended up getting a new girlfriend. And um, her new boyfriend and I didn't get along and drama, drama. uh, And I told her to choose him or me she chose him and i didn't because i didn't have anywhere else to go i ended up out here yeah yeah because i was at that point i was couldn't move back in with my parents because it was too old and uh, are you still in, in contact with them now yeah um do they know that you're out here yeah they they help us out with stuff from time to time and like they'll they'll let us use their address uh so we have a place to get mail sent um but for the most part we really don't talk uh, just because um my family drama uh yeah. suffice to say um you know n- nothing super horrible just N- not not functional. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of it is I, I remind my mom way too much of my dad. Um, and, uh, and also um, had too much of a questioning authority streak. Yeah. Like, you know. You're a, are you a rebellious type? Not so much rebellious as, like, 
I want to know there's a good reason for for do uh, f that I ha that for the things that, like if you need me to do something and uh, uh, and it's not something I'm super interested in, I, I need there to be a good reason for me to do it. Yeah. Um. And did that pose problems for you in your life, like you know, school or you know having a more kind of traditional. Um, nine to five kind of job or something. Yeah, because I was also like I was also one of those uh, kids who oftentimes was smarter than the teachers, <laughs> and they hated me for it. Um, like I remember um, uh, one time in third grade. I, I'm, I'm sure you remember how you had, uh, like, you know, you would have the the weekly spelling lists of words you had to memorize the spellings of, and then on uh, on Friday you had the tests where you had to write the word in a sentence, make sure you understood the meaning of it as well. And one week, my one of the words was scarce. For the test, I wrote the, the sentence, manatee are scarce, which at the time was both factually and grammatically correct. Thankfully, their, uh, uh, their numbers have rebounded due to conservation efforts. Uh, but, you know, the, the sentence was factually and grammatically correct, and my teacher marked it wrong because she didn't know what a manatee was. Yeah. So you've kind of been someone that you don't take authority when misguided authority uh, very I, well. I, I don't... I, I'm not one who generally accepts authority for authority's sake. Like, if you can show me that there's a good reason for authority to, you know, do things that it's doing, it's like, okay, fine. But I... I, I, I would definitely say my politics are... Um, definitely uh fairly left of center yeah um i i don't i i don't trust uh corporations to do the right thing without some kind of serious financial incentive or penalty to to make them do the right thing right so do you think i mean is part of your um you know, society would call you an outsider. Um, is part of that because a choice that you just don't want to go down the road of society says do this, this, and this, and if I do these things, I'll have a happy life. You want to live your own life. Um, yes and no. I mean, a, a big part of it more is that, like, I realized a while ago that like I don't really have like and, and I know that people like there's people out here who just say oh out there who just say oh suck it up but it's like I don't due to various uh, mental and temperamental issues I just I just can't really function in, like, a kind of nine-to-five world. And it's... And honestly, that's one of the reasons that we're thinking of moving to Europe is because, that like, they're a lot better there about realizing that 
hey, we have an abundance. We don't necessarily need, uh, you know, like, uh, and and th this abundance works better if we spread it around so that everybody is taken care of. Uh, you know, yeah, my t I might be paying more in taxes, but uh, but then. Uh, you know, I, uh, when I go to the doctor, I don't even have to pay a copay, and maybe have to pay like a, the equivalent of a dollar for three months prescriptions. Yeah. Do you do you hate it at being out here, or does it give you a sense of you're living the life the way you want to live it? I am definitely not living life the way I want to live it, because if I was living life the way I wanted to live it, I w uh, our jewelry business would be um, taken off to the point where even if we don't have, like, a little storefront, we'd at least be making enough that we could be having a roof over our head. Because, yeah. yeah, I know there's people who choose to be out here we don't we didn't we did like uh, we're victims of circumstance and there's unfortunately not uh, you know people say oh why don't you go to this program or that program there's programs out there to help and it's like um, like most of those programs either have multiple year waiting lists or they're so severely underfunded that like they're lucky if they can provide like a sandwich for some of their clients like the and the, that funding is only getting cut more and more and more as like the rich hoard more and more and more money but the Unfortunately, like, a lot of us get lumped in with the addicts and the crazies just for being out here, and most of us aren't. Most of us just ended up in a shit situation, uh, and a lot of us wasn't even, an, uh, wasn't even our fault. Uh, yeah. You know, if it was, it was, like, not preparing well yeah. enough. Yeah. It wasn't even, like, a fault of, like... Yeah, I, I, there are some people who ended up out here because of, like, drugs or criminal issues, but a lot of people ended up out here just... illness or, like, didn't prepare for the eventuality that it might happen, and so we're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll... I'll uh, if something happens, I can crash on my buddy's couch. It's like, well, sorry, dude. My like, uh, my like, we just had a baby. We you can't crash on our couch because yeah. we we you know we don't have the space now because I because uh, we just had a kid, uh, or you know, just somebody ends up getting sick and losing their job, or you know. Um, uh, and this is one of the things I find most disgraceful about this country. My husband, when he was living in Detroit, I was originally from Michigan, um, he ended up homeless in Detroit, and um, uh, met this guy who was a vet. 
uh, uh, met this guy who was a vet, and he was living, uh, and he had been, uh, you know, he had been doing really well in his military career, and his mom, his only living relative, became deathly ill. And he kept trying to get his CO to approve leave for him so he could go visit his mom, go say goodbye to his mom before she passed. And wouldn't let him go, wouldn't let him go, wouldn't let him go. So eventually he got sick of it um, uh, and got himself, uh, ended up getting himself dishonorably discharged just so he could get home to see his mom. She died before he could get home. Um, went through, paid off all her creditors, and because he missed one bill, one creditor, they took the house. And because he got a dishonorable discharge, uh, he is, isn't eligible for any of his vet benefits. Yeah. And, like, he had served his country honorably, and if they had just approved his leave to go home... His life would be completely different. He would, st he would, still, be, he would still be in the service. He would still be... Uh, uh, well, he might, might actually be retired at this point, but he, he would have finished his career in the service because he was going as for a career in the military. He wasn't just enlisted for benefits and get out. He was like a... He was making it his career. Yeah. And because his CEO wouldn't approve his, wouldn't approve his leave so he could go see his only living relative before they passed, he had to get himself dishonorable, dishonorably discharged. And because he, and then because he missed one bill that he, that her, his mom's lawyers forgot to tell him about or something lost the house that he grew up in and ended up homeless. And that's fucking disgraceful in, in this country that, that, that happens to people. Yeah. And it sounds like from what you're saying that a lot of the people that are out here have a story like that or something where yeah. something bad happened and there wasn't a support system to save them or, or and, and, help and them get then, out of that and, and people are like, oh, go to this charity or that charity. And it's like, well, a lot of those charities especially the religious charities, if you're not a member of that faith... And did it actually stop snowing? Yeah, it's it's not snowing anymore. Awesome. <laughs> um, getting it, that umbrella getting annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's heavy. But, it, like, if you're not a member, uh, a lot of the religious charities, if you're not a member of that religion, uh, they'll offer you minimal help, or they'll, they'll proselytize to you and preach at you until uh, before they'll help you. <laughs> um, and then like other like other uh, programs that are supposed to help people like all their fundings getting cut and uh, like when we when my husband got sick we applied f uh, at a bunch of places that uh, that said they offered emergency rental assistance Either we, they said right away that they didn't have funding, or they put us on waiting lists. And we didn't hear back from them until a year later, after we'd already lost our apartment. Yeah. It's like, how can you say there's emergency rental assistance 
If emergency means if I don't pay my rent in the next month, I'm getting evicted. If you have waiting lists that are a year long. Yeah, that's not an emergency time frame. It's a little under a year, I would think. Yeah, and then, like, we're we're on the waiting list for Section 8, but there's so many, you know, the, the shortest list is four years long. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and if developers hadn't come in and basically... Uh, you know, convince the city council to get rid of rent control here in Cambridge. With my social security, I would have been able to afford uh, an apartment for all of us, uh, for my husband, myself, and our animals, and we wouldn't be on the streets right now. But, oh no, the developers have to be able to buy up all the real estate. Yeah. And then you end up with this. With this is this is the result of the developers buying up all the real estate, tons of empty storefronts uh, that sit empty that uh, sit vacant, and then you know the only people that can afford to rent uh, these places end up being chains, and it. Another annoying issue about being out here, having to pause talking so you don't get, so you don't have to shout over ambulances. Um, but then, like, you have all these empty storefronts, and then they'll end up with chains in the because nobody else can afford the rent, and then all of the things that made an area unique are gone because the the only people that can afford to be in those cool unique areas are the big chains yeah and that's another thing too is like the the priorities of this country are so messed up like oh you know we can't fund children's health care but we can give tax breaks to billionaires what's the hardest thing for you and your your family out here yeah, honestly, it's hate from people who uh, who don't understand our situation and don't try to understand. They just see homeless people with animals and a lot of stuff, and the, and the fact that we're you know we have GoFundMe to try and because uh, we want to end uh, try and get to Europe because. Uh, you know the they treat people better there uh, and then like we actually got doxxed yesterday by a right-wing blog um, for because my husband has been tr- sharing our goFundMe um, into a bunch of different groups trying to get us help and like trying to share our story and show like, Hey, we're not bad people. We're not drug addicts. We're just victims of circumstance in a shitty situation. Yeah, yeah. So, do you have you dealt with um, animosity out here, like people saying things to you um, or being rude to you? Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course there there's the there's the usual get a job, and it's uh, and then how, I how d- often does that happen? Um. 
not as much since we got our uh, permit for the jewelry because if people uh, say that, I can just point up and it's like, uh, what do you think this is? I, this is my job. I, I make jewelry. Uh, um, but yeah, like, m my husband actually gets a lot more because he's trans and overweight. Um, uh, and so, bef and I mean, before he came out, was overweight and presented as female. Uh, so, and he ended up getting a lot more hate from people. I've noticed that the people who are willing to say, a lot of the times the people who are willing to say rude stuff in person are not willing to say it when I'm sitting here. And there's a bunch of people who are, who are totally willing to say rude stuff online but would never say it to either of us in person, and then there's people who are only who will only say rude stuff in person to my husband because uh, you know he's an easy target, but would never say anything to me because I'm a six foot tall, two hundred pound dude, and like look like I can handle myself, even though I'm a total teddy bear, but. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but but well, I've and, and noticed that maybe people are people more afraid when you take the the ferret out and you show it show its fangs. And no, most of the time when I take him out, people are like, "Oh my god, he's so adorable!" Because <laughs> he's just he's just a little tiny fuzzy love bug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but I've noticed that like people who are willing to uh, to you know people are less willing to be nasty when I'm here than when it's just my husband. Um, and I think it's, like, I honestly think, especially because a lot of these comments come from guys, a lot of it, is, it has to do with toxic masculinity, like, oh, my husband is a fat trans guy, easy target. Oh, I'm a cis, I'm a cisgender white guy, uh, who's who, who's not really uh, I'm a reasonably large cis uh, cisgender white guy you know if they say something to me like you know they're they're I think they're more worried that if they say something to me like I'd get up in their face and knock their teeth down their throat even though I probably even though I you know really wouldn't, wouldn't unless yeah. they tried to to hurt one of the animals but uh it's that it's that twisted masculine psych macho psychology of oh uh, female or trans male easy target white dude better leave him alone because he might actually kick my ass which is so bullshit yeah. Do you, um, like, what would you generally want people, if you could send a message to the general public to try to understand and try to empathize with your life, what would you say to them? Honestly, like, don't judge people without getting to know them. Like, you know, if you want to actually, like, 
get to know some, like, yeah, they, I'm not going to say there aren't people out here who, uh, who are fuck-ups, because there are, there are, there, you know, there are people who are out here who honestly should be in some kind of long-term residential mental health care facility because they, they just cannot take care of themselves. But a lot of us out here are good people in a shit situation, and, and you know, just don't judge us without getting to know us. And I'd say that, would, you know, about every group of people. Don't judge without getting to know somebody. Yeah. Because, like, I've seen, you know, I've met some people, I've met plenty of people in my 37 years that, you know, if you... You know, judge them on society's me uh, metrics of success or, you know, reasonably successful people who are fucking horrible, horrible scumbags. And then I've met people who, you know, society considers the dregs, who would give you the shirt off their back if you needed it more than they did. Yeah. Uh, and too many people judge based on appearances. And, like, they'll judge us for being homeless and uh, and then not even find out what happened, how we ended up here. Like, you know, what are we trying to do to better our situation? Because we are, you know, we're not just, you know, we're not content to just rot out here. Yeah. We we want to make something of ourselves. That's why we have the business. Do you have a website? Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we're out of uh, business cards at the moment. But a customer right now. Um, if you look up Caged Earth Designs Inc. Inc. on Facebook, you'll find us and our uh, Instagram and uh, 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 website are linked to that. And I do encourage you to check out Caged Earth Designs, Inc. and see whether you like the jewelry that Justin and his husband make. I know it's post-Christmas, but Valentine's Day is right around the corner. So if you're looking for some handmade jewelry made by a local artist, check out Caged Earth Designs, Inc. In his interview, if you remember, Justin mentioned that he and his husband were doxxed by a right-wing blog. Uh, I wanted to read some excerpts from that article because it gives perspective on how some people actually view the homeless. As a warning, it contains some language that could be potentially offensive to some people, so please fast forward uh, about a minute and a half if you're wary of any kind of bigoted speech. The article is on turtleboysports.com and is titled, quote, Homeless Cambridge Fupa Sloths who won't rehome pets, have two GoFundMes to move to Germany, collect free stuff there, and get gender reassignment surgery. It begins, quote, They're homeless and usually rest their head at night in the center of Cambridge. Yes, that's right. Only in America can you be morbidly obese, own a laptop, have no children, an able-bodied husband, and still be homeless. Oh, and from the looks of it, they do not have that quote, disease that makes you spend all your rent money on smack. So what is their excuse? Don't worry, they've got plenty. And it ends, the taxpayers are going to spend a lot more on these leeches before it's all said and done. 
might as well load their asses on a steamship to Germany so they can become Angela Merkel's problem. Just leave the pets here so they can find real owners who will actually take care of them instead of dragging them down with them. In between uh, these two bookends is a cascade of images pulled from Justin and Blake's social media posts, as well as a litany of gross exaggerations of their disability, mental illness, their government assistance, and creature comforts. Some lowlights include, quote, she's sick because she weighs 10,000 pounds, so she can't work. They moved back to mass because we're more generous about handing free shit out here and there's more people to scam. Quote, she's not eligible for SSI because being fat and lazy isn't actually a disability. And then, quote, they don't want to beg, but no one wanted to buy any of their crappy art sold in their business. Okay, I can understand why some people might get frustrated with some of the homeless folks that I spoke to. If you've had to make tough compromises in your life to stay afloat, maybe foregoing your dream for a job you hate or asking loved ones to support you in a time of need... It could be hard to feel sorry for people who refuse to swallow the same bitter pills. But what stands out to me more than anything about the sound bites that I just read is the author's urge to revel in their dysfunction, to mock every error and eccentricity on their GoFundMe page. Whether it's an impractical plan, an ache or pain, an embellishment, or an overzealous ask, Okay, I get it, the Newton's posts do offer plenty of easy targets for a caricaturist like this Turtle Boy blogger. I think it's safe to say Justin and his husband are dysfunctional. But this shouldn't come as some big surprise. Mental illness, poverty, unemployment, they don't exist in a vacuum. They're likely going to be accompanied by a lack of foresight or discretion, willpower. But there is a kind of chicken or the egg type situation at play. Dysfunction can cause hardship, or be caused by it. And most likely, it's a mix of both. A destructive synergy that starts to spiral out of control. But at the moment you encounter someone in need, if you truly wish to help them, it doesn't seem productive to try to distill their character flaws from their bad luck. Like pain, the perception of effort is subjective and the alchemy between those internal factors with the external factors of inherited circumstance is complex. Who's to say the healthy college grad come young professional expended more effort than the poor couple on the street? When we offer people help, we've got to accept them in whole. Warts, obesity, ferrets, and all. Which is why the support we provide for the homeless must be multidimensional. Comprehensive programs should be offered in favor of quick fixes, and any sustainable housing program, in my opinion, should strive to teach life management skills. Because there is a degree of personal agency in homelessness. It is a choice to begin substituting morphine with heroin. It is a choice to pass up the traditional job market or a low-wage gig until you get back on your feet. It is a choice not to move in with your family member. But it would also be presumptuous to insert myself into those predicaments and then say with any confidence that I would choose differently. Our general approach to homelessness is to get someone off the street and then pretend that everything else will just take care of itself. So that's how you end up with people like Mike Gaskill, who I met later on that evening. You might describe him as chronically homeless. 
He probably hasn't had a lucky break in years. To me, his life felt like a giant magnet, attracting toxic personalities, bipolar episodes, and badly timed accidents. My name is Michael Gaskell, and I've been homeless since last November. And how has it been out here for you today? What's what's freezing cold? Um, people are more generous during Christmas time, but if you're trying to survive day to day on the street, you can't. There's not a lot of philanthropy on the street. Christmas time, people feel guilted into giving money. You know what I mean? But it's not the way it's supposed to be. You know. I've always tried to be some sort of a philanthropist, but now, I mean, I'm, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the rut. I made my mistakes in the past, and I have to pay for them for the rest of my life. Uh, but I always get profiled as everything that is my past is who I am. Who you are currently. Yeah. It's not who I am anymore. Can yeah. you hear me? Yeah, t- make sure to talk into the mic. Yeah. Yeah. So every everything that's happened to me for years and years is is uh, ongoing disasters with mental health and health care and, and any kind of provider that's supposed to help the VA. I can't even get VA benefits since the Clinton administration. I'm a Desert Storm veteran. I didn't go overseas, but I was activated. We had a MASH unit, and they won't give me a DD-214 to prove that I'm a Desert Storm veteran, even though I was activated because they said it was a secret mission and I had a classification, a secret classification, which doesn't matter. I should have the paper so I can get the benefits. I have 33% hearing loss in my ear from a grenade blowing up next to my ear. And they never fix that. I need glasses that work. I need my eyes. I have cataracts. I need my cataracts fixed. And I don't, my insurance is like, garbage i have medicaid and medicare and doesn't barely do anything what's the primary thing you think that's keeping you from getting back on your feet just finding a place that's affordable yeah it's very expensive in boston and i don't trust any roommates anymore i keep getting screwed over i bring all the money in the house and they don't do a damn thing except sit on their ass and wait for me to bring the money yeah. And I'm not the one that wants to do that. I, I mean, I'm trying to pay bills, no problem, and I'm trying to get out of out of this kind of weather, but I don't want to be taken advantage of, and everybody uses me as a doormat. And I just told two people to screw today because that, cause they were staying with me. I kept letting them stay at the hotel with me, and they're paying $10 or $20. I told them all they have to do is get an Uber, and they said, don't tell me what to do with my money. And I said, okay, then go on your own. Yeah, yeah. Leave me alone. Have you been in shelters at all? or you? Just- yeah, I got all my st- – I, I was on my way to Berkeley because I had sent my album that I did, uh, a couple songs for my album I sent to them just for the hell of it, and they actually wanted to do an interview – and I got my synthesizer, I got my computer, I got my bass. That's all at the shelter? No, I oh. got them all stolen at the shelter. Oh, oh, wow, wow. So that's why you don't? I, that's why I don't go to shelters. And you get bed bugs and people, you know, are really skeevy. And, you know, you get all your shit stolen. And people like to go through your pockets when you're sleeping. And it's yeah. just a really bad place to be. Everybody says it's not like that. It is like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've been there, and I, and I don't want to be there anymore. So, And w- most nights, are you, it, since it's been cold, have you been able to get somewhere to sleep? or? I've been getting philanthropy since since a few weeks. For three weeks in a row, people have been helping me get into to a very cheap hotel. 
Um, it's way far away from here. It's like 30 minutes away, but you can't touch a hotel over here for less than 343 a night. Wow. And I'm getting a hotel for 201 for three nights. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm getting out of the cold for three nights for 200 bucks. And they serve you breakfast and they, and they have a swimming pool there so I can exercise. And they have an exercise gym there. And the people are very nice. And it's, it's a Bedford Plaza hotel and they're very good uh, to most homeless people unless you go in there all drunked out. And I, don't, I haven't used drunk in 25 years. I never put anything in my arms, but I used to take you know, lots of pills. Yeah. I was dead on arrival 10 times. Yeah. Last time they brought me back with paddles. And so you've had a long story kind of, of throughout your life of different challenges, yeah. it sounds like. That's why, I did so, that's why I became a social worker, and I worked at Mass General Hospital 30 years ago as an LPN. Before that, I was a CNA, and in between, I was doing sales and coffee shops and selling my artwork and jewelry, whatever. I was just trying to live and survive. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening the last time what, what, when you ended up here? out here in November what, what kind of what were the tra events that transpired leading well, up to that I lived in New Hampshire and I had a really nice apartment it was really inexpensive I had two bedrooms I had all my own furniture I bought my computer my TV everything was in my washer dryer and I had invited a homeless couple to my home last Thanksgiving last year and I went to the bathroom and they took the turkey and drove away and I said this could only happen in New Hampshire so I guess I went bipolar and I just put all my stuff in storage and left. And then I lost all my stuff in storage because I couldn't afford it because I was too busy trying to stay off the street. So I had to use that money for, to get out of the street because I don't want to be out here. People get stabbed and shot and I don't want to deal. I used to Taekwondo, now I'm Taekwondo did. So I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to do that. So you, you don't have any of that stuff anymore? Because like, you said you have gone. All Everything's gone. gone. Yeah. All my equipment to go to Berkeley, gone. All my clothes, my passport, everything I own, gone. Yeah. Everything I own. All my furniture, everything. I had a $5,000 hutch. I had beautiful stuff. Not, I'm not materialistic, but I worked my ass off for everything I had. And that you, you moved that stuff into storage. I put it into storage, and I couldn't afford the storage after six months. And what did they do with the stuff once? They auctioned it out. Oh, my God. Because you didn't, and then, because I you couldn't didn't. pay it. My friend was supposed to help me pay it. He never paid a penny. Yeah. And, and I was trying to pay $400 uh, a month to stay at a person's house and another 200 to keep that stuff, and I didn't have enough to do it. I'm only getting a little bit over $600 a month yeah. and from the government, and I can't get a regular job because I don't have a stable environment to live in. If I had a stable environment and change my clothes every day and have a shower every day and be able to shave and, and be groomed, I would have a job. I can do almost anything. Yeah. What kind of job would you like to have? What would be? Do you want to get back into to social work? Uh, no, I, I'm I'm actually going into uh, I'm I'm going with vocational rehab right now, and I'm actually going to be being a veterinarian assistant, which is a nurse for animals, uh, because when I got in trouble 20 years ago with the law, I can no longer work as a regular nurse, or unless you know I'm in another country. So. Yeah. You said that you went bipolar when um, those people took that stuff, the turkey from you. Yeah, because right? I just, so, I mean, I just was you, manic and I just said, this is crazy. And I just. Do you suffer from bipolar disorder? I do. I have yeah. bipolar. I have PTSD. Um, 
I have PTSD from not just being out here, but from everything, from yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm a child of social services and I, a million other things. And then you have a, a long story. Yeah. And down the road, I, I, a lot of bad things happened to me that I never, that I swore I would never do back to anybody. And I did all the things that I never thought I would do. Uh, why? I don't know. Forensically, I can't figure it out, but I know that there's a lot of things that happened to me in the past that were almost normal behavior to me, so I just repeated behaviors that I thought were normal. It was at this point in the interview where I began to realize how deeply rooted Mike's dysfunction really was. Although his story is riddled with holes, it became clear that his misfortune is deeply entwined with his own mental illness and his own scars. While his actions and reactions may seem irrational, his distrust of other people is learned from a lifetime of disappointments. But 25 years ago, people were disrespecting me and yelling and screaming at me and spitting at me, and I was able to do what I was able to do, and, and the cops never bothered me. I was able to yell back at them, and I even had a rabbi spit on me and tell me that I'm a no-good Jew, and I picked them up right off the ground and I told them, don't ever disrespect the Kohen, which is the priest of the Jews, even though I'm on the street. And I had, a, I was holding the rabbi up in the air. I was built like a brick shit house. I just got out of the army. And the guy spit on me and called me a dirty Jew. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, maybe we should talk about this and, and, and it'll be okay. And I'll take you out for coffee. And I put him down and I turned him around and kicked him in the ass. And I said, you're not worth my time and you disrespected me and I'm a Kohen and I'm your priest and whether I'm on the street or not and whether I made mistakes or not, all the things that I did, I repented for. I It's called Teshuva and I did all sorts of seminars and uh, sermons on YouTube, my own, about these kinds of things. How has your spirituality been affected by your experience out a here? A little bit. In, in what ways? that I can't have the Zen that I used to have. It's not the same harmony because I'm going from one day to another to know if I'm going to make enough money to get out of the cold. Does it ever help you get through the day? It helps me through the day every day. Yeah. What do you, what do you like to think about or what, what do you try to... Th whatever Whatever is clever that happens to be heavenly or, you know, Zenful or a waterfall or peace and harmony or you know something religious and spiritual you or, visualize something yeah. a place that's better than where you are right now yeah yeah always like far away like in another country away from america where they treat their own veterans like shit yeah you know what are you most um what's the hardest thing about this time of year other than the cold not having my family yeah because of my mistakes in the past are you so you're not not in contact with them anymore? You're strange. Not really. Them? I yeah. mean, I am on and off, but it's just not even like it's never been a good family relationship. It's been always a dysfunctional family, but it was much better than it is now. So, if you had one wish for, you know, for the in the spirit of Christmas, what would you say it would be? Just some, one small thing that could make a big difference for you. That I could that I could have some contact with my kids and my family again. Yeah and that they would be part of my life. My kids haven't really been part of my life. They got basically stolen from me yeah. in the system. So that's the, the thing that you kind of have the most... Yeah, I have a 24-year-old and a 19-year-old. I, I wish they knew they had a father. They yeah. might not even know. Yeah. I had trifling girlfriends. One of them 
One of them, I just went on an army drill for three weeks, and I came back to the apartment, and my son and her were gone. Yeah. No idea where they were. I called exploited children, Oprah Winfrey, you know, child services in Tennessee where I thought they were. Uh, then I called again and asking about, you know, the hospital he could have been born in and where he might have gone. And they just thought I was a crazy man when I called exploited children, but I really was looking for my kids. I've been looking for my kids since they were born. Yeah. I have one of my sons in my hand when he was eight weeks old, and that was the only time I ever had my baby in my hand, my Joseph. My Andrew, I never saw. He got taken away from us in the mental health system. They never thought that I could handle, uh, you know, my child if he's projectile puking and changing his diaper and putting, you know, putting him to bed and feeding him. And I was very capable. Unfortunately, the girl I was with quickly developed severe schizophrenia. It came out of nowhere and it came so hard that she just went nuts. And they just basically said, well, you guys are unstable. I wasn't unstable. I could have, I, I got her to go take a bath when she forgot to take a bath. Yeah, yeah. And I had to leave that relationship, obviously, because I couldn't do that. I didn't want to be the nurse and the boyfriend. It was crazy. Do you ever try to reach out to your family again? or Every day, every time. And they're not interested in no. helping you out? No. What do they say? My mother says she doesn't have anything to help me. She can't, she can't survive herself, but she has her own addiction issues. And then the rest of my family, basically, we are just so separated. It's just, it's a sad, it's a sad story, but some of the people out here I thought were family, but nobody here, I don't trust anybody on the street. Nobody. So you kind of just have to be self-reliant? I'm all self-reliant. Everything that's in my pocket that I make to go to the hotels, I make on my own. And if I can move around, I sing and dance. I don't just try and ask people for money. I don't like begging for change. Um, it's not my style. I'm a PR person. I like to talk. I like to be, uh, you know, around other people that are public it's hard to see other people out here that, you know, with their pants falling down or them shitting their pants or them pissing all over themselves and walking around drinking Listerine yeah. and, uh, you know, you know, half drunked out, you know, like the girl that just came here, you know, always got, you know, pills in her system and always got a needle in her arm. And those are the kind of people that I avoid. Do you think people take advantage of you more once they know that you're out on the street? You think no, they take advantage of me, not because I'm on the street, but because I'm too good-natured for my own good. Yeah. And it gets me so screwed over all the time. You've had to learn how to... See, it sounds like you've learned the lesson and just that you can't trust people. I don't trust anybody. Yeah. That's a sad thing to hear. I don't but even trust my own family because yeah. my own family screwed me over. Yeah. I mean, I have family members that were involved in a gang rape and a murder of my girlfriend that lived on the street with me 25 years ago. Yeah. And, and that's my own family, you know? Yeah. Stories like these can make you doubt whether humans are all that evolved after all. When we strip away all the niceties of social etiquette, what are we left with? It's easy to feel like we're on our own island when we hear a voice like Mike's alone in the night. But I want to return to some things that Paula Nolan said about her relatively short time on the street because it restored my faith in the human impulse to band together, to act with altruism, to form families that endure beyond our temporary individual needs. While homelessness can certainly be isolating, it turns out it can also bring us together. 
Have, have the people that you've met out here... Um, They're good people. Yeah. Most of them. And have, have, has that, have you been missing family in a way? Um, but, mm, and have yeah. they replaced some of well, that? Definitely. That's exactly what they do out here. Like you, you know, um, and I, I, because you're together and you see each other so many hours out of the day and you're helping each other either not pick up or not, you know, take that, that hit or, you know, um, helping somebody work on their resume or, you know, whether it be their, you know, whatever their, their issue is, is somebody that across the board that, you know, maybe has a special taste in that. Like, yeah. I mean, I've met homeless, you know, veterans. I've met homeless doctors. I've met homeless, like, and they're homeless because they, you know, lost their stuff, you know, lost things one way or another, whether it's through divorce or, or death, or you know, um, depression, or drug use. Like this, everybody has their own story. Right. Everybody, it's all in the end. It's all a similar story, and we all we all rely on each other to make it through the day. Yeah. You know, and especially when it's cold, we we truly rely on each other. What are so? What are the ways in which you guys all you know some other ways where you guys all support each other? Um, like we the other day, me and and uh, me and Ma call. B.O.B. Um, uh, teddy bear because he's at, he's just like <laughs> he just protects like he's made sure that we're we're safe like you know yeah. at night like he'll I can I can actually sleep and and actually get a couple hours of actual solid sleep and know that I'm gonna wake up and my stuff is still gonna be there. Does he? So he watches. Yeah, we take yeah. turns. All of us take turns. Why everybody sleeps? We all take turns shifts yeah. throughout the night because unfortunately. You know, there is the majority of people that we talk to that are homeless that all of us are friends with, you know, but then they we have their, our own little cliques. Yeah. Like we, our, our group, you know, none of us use anymore. Yeah. You know, a lot of us are actually in programs or go to groups or meetings and, and work on our recovery on a regular, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, we talk to people out here daily that are still using, but because we're not in their group, we don't have to witness it on a regular. Right, right. So that's not putting us our sobriety back in, in jeopardy. But it's not forced upon either. Like, we choose to socialize with who we want to, right? But we choose to not be with people that are, that are doing certain things on, on a 24-hour basis. Yeah, yeah. And that's just our own choice for our own recovery. Yeah. But, so, yeah, all of us, and that's another, we all hold each other together. Yeah. Like it's not. It's not, who wants to be on the street 24/7? Yeah. I mean, who does, Who all when when you when you realize the little things are so important, like it changes your whole look on things. Yeah. Like it really does. And when you're grateful for something as small as I don't know something warm to drink. Yeah. You know, or a blanket or a mat, so you're not on the concrete. You know. I mean that it just it makes you a different person. Yeah. When you so. look, I mean, do you think once you get back on your feet and things? Oh, I'll still talk to these people to the day I die. Yeah. Day I die, and whether they're homeless or not, like, and you know what's funny? Even if I got an apartment, and say, Ma, I take her anyway. She doesn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like the boys, like they would not. I know for a fact, right? They would not come with me, even though if I had the room. Like yeah. maybe they'd come if it was raining, or for the holidays, or they. But they would not. They would not want to 
feel like they're intruding on my life because right. I finally made a step forward. Right. And they wouldn't want they me to go backwards, even yeah. though I would want to help them. Yeah. That's, that's the type of people that's out here. Right. If that kind of gives you any yeah. kind of idea. People that are self-reliant, they don't. Yeah, but yeah. they're not. But they're selfless. Yeah. You know what I mean? They yeah. really are. People think homeless people are very selfish and and um, uh, innate and stuff, but they're not. Yeah. They're, they're absolutely the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, and how many? How big is the group here that we would say? Um, well, the um, Joe over here is new to our group, the one in the orange hat. He's um, the one that's uh, playing the guitar. He is new to the area. Um, he does have family here. Um, his sister went, but he just moved back up here with his sister. So when um, when Joe came, uh, did he approach you guys, or did you guys just no? Met, we kind of just, just we met just him had seen him and, and kind of got a feel for him. You can you, when you when you're on the street, you can get a feel for somebody, and and even being a a, a uh, in recovery and in being a former addict, you know, um, addicts are very in tune to um, body language and 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 whatnot and how to read somebody quick. Yeah, right? so you can tell um, if someone's still yeah, using. Yeah, you can tell somebody whether they're using, whether they're kind of alone, whether what their what their kind of story is. Right, you can evaluate them quickly. Yeah. Right, and we watched him for a few days to see like kind of what he was doing, what his, what his, um, what his thing was during the day, like what kept him busy, like, yeah. or even what his sign said when he panhandles. Yeah, like yeah. you got, you got ones that are witty and, uh, and smart ass, yeah. <laughs> and have cute, funny, you know, things on their signs, which gets attention, which gets money by their personality. Yeah. And then you have other ones that like, like Ma and I will put a sign up that's more like. Um, like something you'd hear your mother say because we're yeah. moms and yeah. we take care of the boys. Like yeah. We take care of the group. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I take care of her, but she takes care. She's the mom of everybody. Like everybody on the street comes to her, whether it be for advice, to cry on her shoulder, to, you know, I mean, she's just, she's one of those wonderful people. And unfortunately, God forbid, if anything ever happens to her, this Harvard's going to be a mess. Yeah. Like she's, a lot of people really depend on. Yeah, you. she yeah. she means a lot to a lot of people here. Yeah. So, um, do, you, do you guys pull together your uh, earnings yes. from panhandling? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's like today we needed a new carriage. It was fifty dollars. All of us that got money throughout the night that like people would go, like there was this uh, gentleman that works for the MBTA that came last night under the tunnels, because um, they come in and clean the station at night and things like that. Um, and then allowed that turned around and, and gave us all twenty dollars, which we didn't. We tried not to accepting it. We tried giving it back, and he would not take it back. Because um, there's things, yeah, we need the money, but then at the same time, we're also very humble. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? None of us like asking for handouts. It's very hard for for anybody I know in in, in my particular group or family, whatever you want to call them. To even to even panhandle, it's not it's not a fun experience. Of it's not, not it's not something like people have this misconception that oh well, they just sit on their butt all day and they you know people give them handouts. Well, you know what? That's not exactly how that works, yeah. and it's not something that we like doing. Yeah. Towards the end of my interview with Paula, a man walked up to us to say hi. Paula seemed excited to see him and invited him to the microphone. His name is Jeremy, and he was homeless for over a year, but eventually got a job and lifted himself off the streets. 
but he didn't see eye to eye with Paula on much, especially the spirit of self-reliance that she claimed is characteristic of homeless people. He would very much disagree. Uh, so when I was little, uh, my mom died when I was two. I never met my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in and out of foster homes, juvenile detention center, mad at the world, angry at the world for a long time. Like right up into my 20s, into my late 20s, I was just going to do what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to listen to anybody. You know, yeah. I had a bad drinking problem. Yeah. I just did what I want wanted. And then uh, in and out of prison, like, you know. Yeah. Th- think I was like. 30 i got out of prison mm-hmm. 32 and, and what's your step once you get out of prison what do you where do you go i to went do? to a homeless shelter but i wasn't going to stay there because i didn't like the whole situation so I, I i just found place to sleep at night like in u-haul trucks or whatever yeah you know i sold like weed for a little while and, and then i found that job just yeah i went to an outreach program and how long were you on the streets for um about a year and a half yeah was it hard yeah it was it was it wasn't so hard. I'm not going to say it was hard. No, because, you know, I was selling like nickel bags. I was making like $300 a day, so nickel bags. Yeah. You know, so I'd stay in motels or, you know, like U-Haul trucks or whatever. And yeah. But then once I got the job and I started working 50, 60 hours a week, it was like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do this. Yeah. And I just started doing it and I got better and I got better and I got better. Did your job know that you were living no, on the streets? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't was it hard? Know. Was that stressful to constantly try to cover well, up for that? Like if people, would they ask, you know? No, because what I did is I went, or? I got a storage unit and yeah. I was paying $80 a month for a storage unit. And I went and got a gym membership, not to work out, just so I could use the shower. Yeah. You know, so I'd, I'd go to the gym, take my shower, you know, take all my stuff to storage. Sometimes yeah. I sleep in the storage unit, you know. And... What, what was the hardest part about not having a home during that period? The drive to try and be better and not fall into the streets and, and, yeah. and just being a bum and, and, and drinking every day and, yeah. and just being a fucking loser. You yeah. know? Like, it's so easy to just succumb to that and yeah. just be an absolute loser. And not, you know, I could have went and got on Section 8 and, or, you know, I got $800 disability check and. Yeah. I just, I always felt like I was better than that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wasn't going to. So it, it was that. it was hard, though, to, to remain just motivated when you can see, to, like, I can yeah. live like this. I and can't. I wouldn't, yeah. I don't want to. I yeah. will not. Yeah. And still hard sometimes. And I still have a lot of my old friends who are still homeless five yeah. years later. Yeah. Still, I go through the parks and, like, I come over here and I see all the same people still yeah. doing the same things. Yeah. And it's sad. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's just sad. Yeah. What was it like? I mean, when you finally decided, I mean, you had the job, right? What, what, what kept you from getting off the streets initially? Was it just you didn't have enough saved yet? Or? Yeah, I just didn't have enough saved yet, you know what I mean? And uh, it took me a while to save some money, but as soon as I saved it up, I went and I found a room for it, you know, in Dorchester yeah. with roaches and everything else, but I wasn't on the streets anymore. And yeah, well, what did it feel that first night? Like sleeping, it was, it was a little strange, but I was really happy. You know what I mean? It Did you have like, it furnished? Oh uh, no! So I had to. It was I just went a bare out, room. I went to um, Goodwill. You know, I bought stuff from there. I went to uh, like the dollar store. I got sheets and blankets from the dollar store. You yeah. know, and I mean, were, were you lying there feeling like grateful that I, night? It was. I was very grateful. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you know, I, I just I didn't have. I had keys. You know, it's my own place that I worked hard for. You know, I worked hard. Yeah. I worked really hard to get that, man. And uh, I don't know, man. I'm just, I believe in myself. And I'm so proud of myself. 
Like, I'm so proud of myself. Yeah. And I'm not even close to where I want to be. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, now I make almost $20 an hour. You know what I mean? And I still feel like I haven't even come close to making it. And anytime I can lose that yeah. and, and go right back to, yeah. to being. The Does that scare you or does it just make you more motivated? It makes me more motivated because I know I don't ever have to be like that again. It's, it's on me. Yeah. Nobody's going to make it in this world for you. Yeah. Nobody's going to give you anything. Yeah. And that's why I like these homeless people, like every once in a while I still give them change. But for the most part, I look at them like, get up, get a job. Yeah. Get but it, 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 was it hard, though, to get a job when, I mean, for you? I got really lucky. I found this place called Pyramid Builders right over there in um, Roxbury. Yeah. Across in this place called Derby Park. Yeah. And um, I went in there and I told him I was an ex-convict. And uh, my case manager, he was like, I like you. He's like, uh, I'm going to help you find a job. Yeah. And two days later, he called me. Got me a job making $9 an hour. Yeah. So because it, it, some of the people I've talked to tonight have sort of described some of the ways it can be hard to get a job when you are homeless. I it's mean, yeah. very hard. It can be very hard because, you know, in order to find a place to live, you need a job. Yeah. You know, but in order to find a job most of the time you need a place to live right right i wasn't for, that wasn't not me yeah you know I, I found the job and i was like well i'm just gonna set my phone every night i'm gonna wake up and i'm gonna go yeah you know so it's not that hard they yeah. say it's hard it's it's not that hard yeah opportunities out there yeah well for instance uh paula was telling me she's applied to like 50 something jobs you know and it, it she's she'll She'll turn around, and I'm sure she's going to find somewhere to be. But it, she has described how that it is pretty difficult. Um, you know, I disagree. Yeah, okay. I disagree. Anybody can go to McDonald's. Yeah. You know, Burger King. Um, anywhere you can find a job. If you really want a job, you will find a job. Yeah. It's not that hard. It's yeah. not that hard. Unless you're like child predator, or you're a drug addict, you know, or a vicious alcoholic. Yeah. Like. The only thing keeping you from getting a job is you. Yeah. And I, I, I've been homeless. You know what I mean? I know this. Yeah. I know this because I did it. I know it's all excuses. It's all excuses. Yeah. It is. For the most part. 90% of the time, if you want a job, you're going to get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Did it, did it ever get you down that you were on the street? Like, just kind of feeling like this isn't the version of myself that I want to be. Like, did you have dark days or do you have nights where I mean, you were, where I, you're I, really I, down? I still have dark days. I yeah. think I will for the, I've just, I'm, you know, I'm depressed by nature. You know what yeah. I mean? Just with my mom dying and everything else. Like yeah. I can still sleep for 12, 13 hours. Yeah. It's just, you have to, you have to, it's gotta be all about, you have to motivate yourself. Yeah. You have to, yeah. cause nobody's going to do it for you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to be out here and it's not easy to turn yourself and it's not easy to get off the streets. Yeah. But if you really want to do it, you yeah. can do it. Yeah. Well, what's the advice that you would give like practical? I know like, you know, the motivation that you, you have is, is, is but the, wh what would you say to people? Like what's a way that they can start becoming motivated and start making steps to don't getting do off drugs. The number one, you know, what yeah. I mean? stay off the drugs change people places and things you know what i mean if you hang around with all your homeless friends you're gonna be homeless yeah if you hang around with a bunch of junkies you're gonna be a junkie you know what i mean if you hang around people who are looking for work or trying to do something positive with their life you're gonna look for work and do something positive with life i i really feel like it's all about who you surround yourself with. yeah do you still ever reach out to people homeless people and try to help them all or? the time yeah. when i see him i tell my story that's why i'm doing this too you yeah. know what i mean i i will give my testimony i will tell people yeah you can do it yeah and have you I, seen I any of the people that you gave advice to have you seen <laughs> them no. yeah no no 
they don't want it. Yeah. They don't want it. They, yeah. It's easier. Yeah. It's it's honestly easier to be homeless and to live off the state and get free meals and get free clothes and and, and not have any responsibilities what and get fucked up every day yeah. and and just just they're running. Yeah. They're running. Yeah. From responsibility, from themselves, from from life. Like, yeah. They're avoiding everything. I don't know. It's just it's sad. Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. What's your what is your dream? Like, where do you see yourself in five years? Like, what's what's the the thing that you kind of you know, have your eyes set on? I, I'm, I'm a poet. Uh-huh. Like, I'm a really good poet. Uh, I'll tell you a poem. Ready? Yeah. yeah. A little closer to the mic. Without rain, nothing grows. And it's been pretty stormy on these roads I've chose. No umbrella or raincoat. It's starting to look like I may need a boat. Life's not fair, but I won't despair. Shedding tears won't get me there. Dealing grind, grind and deal. Don't get overwhelmed with the feelings that I feel. Keep on keeping on with the bounce in my step. Thinking before I act to limit my regrets. And that's it. But, Was that you know, inspired at all by your experiences out Every here? single one of my poetry, poems is inspired by my life. Your story, yeah. And, uh, my life's been something. Like, I have no family. I've never had any family. You know, I've always been alone. Always been alone. I just, I was never going to give up. Yeah. I was never going to give up. And I'm never going to give up. I'm never, I don't care what happens tomorrow. Yeah. I'm not going to give up. Don't fucking give up. Try. Just keep trying. Yeah. Right? Try, try, try. And oh, it's always, it gets worse before it gets better, always. Yeah. But if you keep fucking trying, something's going to come out of it. Yeah. Life's not going to shit on you forever. Yeah. You know, karma is real. Yeah. And you're going to get out of it yeah. what you put into it. Yeah. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Humans are constantly in flux. My existence is not a single point in time. It's a thread connecting different eras of my evolution, the good times and the bad. For some... Homelessness is a painful cycle, repeating the same mistakes, experiencing the same hardships. For others, it's a momentary dip before rising to prosperity. That's how it turned out for Jeremy, at least. After interviewing Mike Gaskell, I poked around the internet, trying to find some trace of his alter ego, DJ Pastor G. I found his YouTube page, which contained a few of the sermons he'd mentioned to me. The videos consist of him speaking to a webcam. In the background is a dimly lit, empty room, which I surmise to be his old apartment. He wears his yarmulke and periodically glances to some notes off screen. In the clip, Mike attempts to make amends for his past mistakes and express forgiveness for himself and for the world that let him down. I have so much that I want to share with you people today. This is not a YouTube, you know, say hi to me or say hi to you. This is who I am as I change in my life. Giving you just a little bit of what I know. Who's, it's helping me. Doesn't mean it's going to help you. But if you take a chance, just like I am, who knows what Hashem can bring to you. May we all be blessed and inscribed and sealed for good. But we're not all good. There's evil people out there. 
rapists, murderers, pedophiles, things that are bad. People do bad things. That doesn't mean they'll do them for the rest of their life. But those are the things that have happened in this world. In a place where everybody behaves inhuman like a beast, that's where we strive to be human. There's no other way to explain it. Right now, I'm doing my own accounting of my soul. And I, I mean, I have amends to make. We all have amends to make. And it's time that all of us wake up and start to make the amends. It's easy to walk away and say, okay, it's in the past. Sure, it's in the past. But remember what you did in the past that was bad. And do the opposite of that and make it good, if you can. There's something somber, almost confessional, about the close quarters and dingy lighting and the muffled sounds of cars passing outside. But what makes the video so heartbreaking is that it's dated from the summer of this year, just a few months before Mike lost his home again. It's a snapshot of a man reaching out for something better, but not knowing that it's about to get worse. It's very difficult in these times for all the things that we go through and all the things we see happening out in the world. It's hard to know that there's a God and feel that there's a God. It's hard in, in this life. Um, everything isn't as it should be. Um, if you believe that it's possible to ruin a life, then believe it's possible to rectify a life. In hindsight, you can almost hear that impending disaster weigh on Mike's voice. This quiet moment of reflection and optimism would quickly dissolve into chaos, and a few months later, Mike would be on the street again. But as bleak as things are for him, he still feels he's only a few steps away from rebuilding to the life that he wants. To go to voc rehab and to start school for veterinarian assistant, uh, but first, first and foremost to find a place to live that I can afford. What are you doing right now, kind of day to day, to try to just looking for a place that's affordable? or? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to. I have my stuff on Facebook. I had to pay $25 to get a roommate connection thing. And I've talked to a lot of people. I got robbed a few weeks ago from a Craigslist. The guy took the money and shut the door on me after, you know, uh, after I'd gone all the way over there for the apartment. When you're imagining your life and, you know, years from now or a couple of years, what, what's sort of the, the goal there? What do you, what to do you be want? in Belize or, you know, Ecuador or Thailand. Somewhere warm. Somewhere warm. Somewhere where there's a monkey in your yard in the tree and beautiful women all over the place and surrounded by the Caribbean. If that's not heaven, I don't know what is. And what would you be doing there? Nothing. I'd have a, like a little inn, yeah. like a, a little bed and breakfast. You could, people could come there and you could yeah, meet I them mean, it'd and be like Yeah, it'd be like 10 rooms or 8 rooms. I'd go there with $50,000. Any of those countries, it'd be worth 150. Yeah. And that'd be enough to buy a hotel and live the rest of my life. Well, it's... Sounds like a far way off on a night like tonight, but it's not too far away. Yeah, just once step. I ha once I have the right job 
and I put my money away, I'll have what I want. If, if I put a picture or something on, on the microwave, if I want a ring or if I want a car or if I want a pair of pants, I look at it and I say I'm going to have it by this day and I have it. Yeah. That's how I do it. No, none of these people out here want to listen. Oh, careful. None of these people out here want to set goals for themselves. And all they want to do is come out here and be derelicts and junkies. And I have no interest. I, I wish I could, like, wave a magic wand for all the shit that I did wrong and make my life, you know, perfectly good. And then everybody would be like, oh, he's such a nice guy. But that's not how it is. Yeah. And you have to bear the consequences of things that happened yeah, in the past. But that's why I, I want to be, you know, I don't want to be a public figure, but I want to be public about my life. And I want people to understand that, you know, we're not all the same. And no matter what people do in the past, that doesn't mean that everybody is the same person. I'm myself. I'm Michael Gaskell. I'm not any other criminal or other person that's done wrong or good for anybody. I'm myself, and I have my own individuality and my own intellect, and I know how to fix things if they're bad, you know, and I know how to make myself think the right way when I'm thinking the wrong way. Yeah. And other people don't know how to do that. For Paula, the future remains uncertain. As she contemplates embarking on a career change, she fights to not get down on herself. But for the time being, she's grateful for her newfound family. And she's looking forward to the days ahead. The hardest thing is emotionally keeping it together. Yeah. Like to, to convince yourself that it could always be worse. Yeah. And, it, and that it's going to get better. Like you, and otherwise, yeah, I mean, otherwise we'd be all held up in a corner. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think, the hardest. It's a mental part of it. Is it hard this time of year uh, with the holidays? How has that been for you? Well, it's hard husband? for me in the holidays anyways because... Um, I'm losing some very close people to me. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, holidays aren't the greatest anyways for yeah. me. So actually being out here and being around people and not being alone with my thoughts all the time when it comes to that, right? Um, I found actually this year, I am actually looking forward to Christmas. Yeah. And it's not like a Christmas, like in a house with this fireplace and tree, but with, with people that appreciate everything they have. Yeah. You know, and Can you we, tell me what your Christmas will look like here? My Christmas group? will look like this, and then uh, we're at the church, and and we will celebrate Christmas. We're going to Christmas mass. We already got our Christmas outfits, and um, anybody that we are know you going to wear something to, fashionable? Of course I will. <laughs> can, can, you, can you describe what your? Um, actually, what did I get? I got this cute little sweater uh, dress, and leggings, and I got boots, and I got mom. A long, beautiful skirt so she can wear all her um, warm clothes underneath. Yeah. And a beautiful purple sweater that goes with her skin. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so she's, yeah, we, and a nice belt. You so know, you guys are going to go to the ser- service? And yeah. then are you going to exchange anybody, gifts or anything? And, and, you know, I mean, everybody that knows us knows that anybody's invited with us. They, they're more than welcome. They can either come. Yeah. Or we all hang out after and we do, you know, it's not like we'll do presents like a Santa thing, but... You know, whatever we all have, we share with each other. Yeah. You know, we'll probably sing stupid songs and maybe, you know, whatever. Yeah, like, make a special just day make out it, of it. Yeah, just make each other smile. That's yeah. all. Yeah. And, and you know what? It'll be a memorable, it'll be something that I'll remember the rest of my life. Yeah. Whether I want to do this every year or not, it's <laughs> yeah, a different thing. Different, but different question. It'll be something that, you know what? It's not the ideal. But you know what? These, these people that are in the same situation will make my Christmas better. Yeah.
After my interviews, I hailed a rideshare to take me away from Harvard Square and got in as the snow started to fall again. Inside the car, the driver looked at my microphones and asked me what I was up to. I said I had been interviewing the homeless. Then he looked back at me and said, I am one of them. His name was Simeon, and he was a U.S. citizen and immigrant from Greece. He had returned to the USA with his brother when their mother was diagnosed with brain cancer. Struggling to find a job and without the savings to afford three months' rent, that's first, last, and security, which is typical in Boston, he took out a loan for a car. It's now where he sleeps and his sole source of income. But when he gets in touch with social services about getting support, they tell him he needs to sell the car. He says this will ruin his credit and that right now the car is his only asset, the only thing keeping him out of the cold and with any semblance of self-sufficiency. Simeon said the system and the lack of a path forward for someone in his situation was humiliating and cruel. A 2014 survey found that a quarter of the city's homeless adults have jobs, revealing the extreme gap between incomes and housing costs. Meanwhile, across the state, the number of homeless families has more than doubled since 2008. While his mother's health gets worse, Simeon lets his brother, who is also homeless, sleep in the car on nights when he can't get a room at a shelter. As we drove and Simeon told his story, I thought of a poem that Michael Gaskell had shared with me. He had learned it in prison years before, but it still felt relevant to his current situation. It's by Robert Frost, and it's called Acquainted with the Night. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street. But not to call me back or say goodbye. And further, still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. I'd like to sincerely thank the individuals I interviewed for opening up to me about such personal aspects of their lives. This episode was produced in a really short timeline, and it would have been 
completely impossible without their cooperation and willingness to share their stories. So to Paula, Michael, Justin, and their families, both on the street and back home, I will be praying that your situations take a turn for the better. And to Jeremy, I wish you continued success with your new job. If you're out there listening and wishing you could do more to help the homeless, please consider donating to one of the many fine organizations that provide support for those in need. Nationally, you could consider the National Alliance to End Homelessness, the National Coalition for the Homeless, the Salvation Army, or Stand Up for Kids. But there are dozens of organizations out there. Just always make sure to do your research before giving. If you're in Boston, consider donating clothes to St. Francis House or food to the Pine Street Inn, or consider volunteering your time to New Life Furniture Bank, New England Center, and Homes for Veterans or Friends of Boston's Homeless. I'd like to thank Steve once again for his lovely music, which he selflessly provides to the show without any expectation of credit. And I'd like to thank the Freesound community at freesound.org for its freely available ambient recordings. On this episode, you heard sounds recorded and mixed by users Svion, Clankbailed in Holland, ST303, and Mr. Oralization. The song that opened the show was There's No Place Like Home for the Holidays, which was performed by Perry Como in 1959 and composed by Robert Allen and lyrics written by Al Stillman rights belong to RCA Records. If you've been liking the show and you haven't subscribed on iTunes, what are you waiting for? Hit subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. It will also help us grow the show and one day climb the charts into the top 100. Don't hold your breath, but hey, anything's possible. And if you're really digging what you've been hearing so far, why not give us a review as well? Also, to stay tuned with our growing community of content creators and creative and journalistic projects, head over to the Media Harmonics Facebook page and give us a follow. I wish everyone a safe and warm new year. I hope you can take a moment to look back on this year and think about how you can be a better and more empathetic listener in the one ahead. Until next month, well, next year... I'm your host, Dave Walker, and this is Empathy Reboot.